it was a blip on the chromatogram that um, make us all rally uh, in, in the corridors here in Rahway, New Jersey. Uh, that was uh, probably my most emotional moment in, in, in my career at Merck. I almost cried when we discovered that enzyme because uh, it was uh, <laughs> an epic journey to, to, to find it. Hi, I'm LC, and I'm a storyteller. I'm a passionate chemist who loves to explore and tell stories about how chemistry can change the world. And I'm Danny, and I'm LC's spirited chemistry co-host. I love to bring high energy and positivity to my chemistry, but also my life. Welcome to the Farm to Table podcast. We're two chemists working at the pharmaceutical company Merck in the U.S. Also known as MSD everywhere else in the world except Canada, the U.S., and its territories. And this is a podcast where we'll tell you stories about the people and the science behind the papers published by our chemistry group. Each week we'll pick one to two papers that we recently published and introduce you to the key people behind it. And also ask them to give you a unique insight into the story behind it. All right, welcome everyone uh, to uh, this week's episode of the Farm to Table podcast. This is the third part in our three-part series on nucleoside chemistry. Uh, last month, we talked a little bit about uh, antivirals, and so we're going to continue on that journey today. Uh, and we're happy to have Anna Fruskowska and Greg Hughes to talk uh, with us today about a paper that appeared in Science in 2019 on the design of an in vitro biocatalytic cascade for the manufacture of a nucleoside analog. So Anya, Greg, welcome to the Farm to Table podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Elsie. It's Woo, great to be here. Welcome. So, uh, you know, both of you are on Twitter, so maybe some of our listeners know you, but we still want to have a formal introduction. So Greg, um, how about you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do at Merck, and maybe a fun fact. Yeah, sure. I, I'm Greg Hughes. I uh, am a, uh, a project leader, a group leader within process chemistry uh, here at Merck. Um, a fun fact about myself, um, I can count to 10 and finish for no good reason. <laughs> and you now need to do it. Um, that's... That didn't sound right. No, no kidding. No one, I think yeah, no one will know. That up. Like, yeah. Like, you could have just made that up. Yep. Maybe we have a Finnish listener that's going to write in and be like, no, no, Greg, Greg just made that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. Very, very fun. Anya, what about yourself? And also congratulations on you know receiving the 2020 Early Career Investigator Award. Woo, yeah, good that, that's thank, so good. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a, a really uh, a big honor to to get this this award. And, and it was another opportunity for us to spell the gospel of biocatalysis. So. <laughs> <laughs> Always a good thing. And actually, this is your second time being uh, on the pod. And so uh, you know, for our listeners, you, you still might be new. So how about you introduce yourself again, who um, who you are, what you do at Merck, and maybe a fun fact. So uh, my name is Anja Fryszkowska. Elsie nailed it this time. And um, I'm a principal scientist, uh, also in Merck uh, Process Chemistry. I specialize in biocatalytic reactions, and, um, and that's uh, what I do on a daily basis. That's my bread and butter, uh, developing enzymatic processes and, and scaling them up. Um, 
Regarding a uh, fun fact, I almost became a radio presenter, <laughs> but uh, then I got persuaded to pursue uh, a PhD in chemistry, and, and, and here I am being a chemist. So you could take our job. There you go. Uh, yeah. No, I didn't dare to take your job. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys rock. So one of the... <laughs> One of the things that our uh, that our graduate student audience certainly is re- always interested in is sort of, you know, at what point in your in your studies did you sort of decide that a career in the pharmaceutical industry, um, you know, was the right thing for you? And so, if, if you can give our listeners a little bit of insight on that, I, I think that'd be Greg. How, how about Greg? You go first. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll start, Elsie. I guess I um, I ended up primarily deciding to go into industry because I found the prospect of um, kind of problem selection as a, an academic researcher, intimidating. I, I I thought it would be really hard to pick good problems to work on because you have to find something that uh, hasn't been solved before, obviously, but that is solvable and ideally something that's important to the greater society as a whole. And I found it really daunting trying to imagine that. And the th- that's my one of my favorite things about in- industry is I never have to spend a minute worrying about that because really interesting, important problems come and find us uh, every day. And all, all we have to do is focus on trying to find creative um, solutions for them. Um, so that, I think that's my my favorite thing about being an industrial chemist, uh, aside from the, the amazing people that I get to work with and try and solve those problems. I feel like Greg stole my answer because actually I came to exactly the same conclusion (laughs) during my postdoc that I'm much better at problem solving than creating problems um, and and that was really appealing to me uh, in in, um, pursuing an industrial career. Um, um, The world uh, is full of problems. I, I just love to solve them. All right. So before we move into the sort of the meat of the paper, one of the things uh, that we uh, are famous for at the pod is for doing a little quiz to kind of break the ice and 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 um, and get us a little bit more comfortable. And so as we were trying to think about what would be a fun quiz for you guys, I came up with uh, Polish and Canadian facts, true or false. And, uh, and so I thought this would be really fun. And so we're going to ask Greg Polish facts. We're going to ask Anya Canadian facts. And then we'll see who can get a, a higher score. I hope that there's a question about the so, flag colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't put that in there. That's too easy. So, so we'll start with Anya. So Anya, the, the first true or false is Canada has the longest coastline in the world. True or false? False. It is true. So Canada's coastline is over 243,000 kilometers. That's 151,000 miles, Danny. Um, (laughs) And uh, and, and a lot of that is because of all the islands in the the very north of the country. All right, Greg. The population of Poland is greater than the population of Canada. How many Canadians are there? I feel like that's false, so I'm going to say true, because you would probably try to trick me. <laughs> actually, it is false. They are actually pretty equal. So uh, wow. at the level of precision that we have, anyway, uh, they're both about the same right now. So uh, I thought that was a really interesting thing that I learned today when I was putting this together. Hmm. All right. Um, it, it, it's fair to, to say, though, that the population density in Poland is almost 10 times greater. Yeah, it'd be a lot of Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, Anya, Canada has 100 times more lakes than yes, Poland. False. True or false? Uh, true. 
<laughs> That's correct. It's true. So Poland has a, a little over a thousand lakes and Canada has uh, over a million. In fact, Canada has more lakes than the rest of the world combined. Go hey. Canada. All right, Greg. The alphabet in the Polish language has 32 letters in it. True or false? I'm going to say that's false. According to the internet, this is true. Oh, geez. <laughs> and Anya agrees? Yeah, we have like four Zs and uh, some extra Zs. <laughs> uh, I assume that was underestimating the number of... <laughs> <laughs> All right, Anya, last one for you. There are over a million Canadian citizens with Polish ancestry. True or false? I'm going to shit. True. It is true. So it's uh, a little over a million. It's uh, almost 1.1 million, including Walter Gretzky, who was Wayne Gretzky's father. Mm. Hey, oh. always, always gets back to hockey. Always gets back to hockey. All right, last one for you, Greg. Uh, Polish citizens have won more literature Nobel Prizes than Canadian citizens. True or false? Mm, I'm going to guess false. It is true. There have been six literature Both. Nobel Prizes for Poland, Polish citizens. <laughs> There's only been one. Um, although Canada has won 28 Nobel Prizes overall, a lot of which are in, in STEM fields and economics, and 19 in Poland, which includes uh, two for, for Marie Curie, of course. I am terrible at this oh, game. Greg, we both studied <laughs> chemistry, not <laughs> geography. <laughs> All right. So the bulk of this work is done in the context of the development of a commercial supply route uh, for, for a nucleoside analog. Um, but since a lot of our listeners are probably not that familiar with what the hell that actually means, uh, Greg, can you give our listeners a little bit of background on, you know, what usually happens for, uh, you know, developing a commercial route versus something that might have just um, been going into clinical trials. Yeah, sure. So um, when we're when we're developing uh, chemistry that we're going to use to supply the the clinic, um, the there's you know you know throughout this obviously quality matters. You you want to make um, uh, material that's that's of, of certain. Uh, purity that that's going to be safe for people to to take. Um, you care a little bit about money, and uh, you care about the um, hazards and and the environmental impacts of your your roots throughout. But the extent to which you care about those things, I think, shift. So, for clinical supplies, the most important thing is is speed. We want to make sure that we um, hit the clinical timelines. Um, so we place a lot of emphasis on um, getting material uh, in. In, uh, in hand really quickly uh, with, uh, and we still pay attention to the other factors like economics and environmental impact, but those become more critical as we move towards uh, finalizing a commercial process. So um, we might use uh, extra purifications and crystallizations, uh, maybe even chromatography for clinical developments. But by the time we're developing the ultimate commercial process, we really try and strip as much of that out as possible. We go to great lengths to minimize both the number of steps that we run and the volumes of waste generated within each of those steps. Uh, we try to eliminate um, reagents that are particularly hazardous or, or solvents that, um, that we don't want to have, particularly for um, the final commercial processes. And, and here uh, we have a, a, a motto or saying of, of putting the very best science in, in place at filing. We, 
it's a, a rare privilege to be able to put a, a drug on the market. And any time we get a chance to do that, we, we do our best to make sure that the chemistry is as good as it can possibly be um, before we before we do that. Now, the subject of your paper is, you know, defining a commercial route, but many of our listeners, you know, they are graduate students or early career folks. They may not like maybe fully understand, you know, how many iterations a route might go through from, you know, early med chem discovery all the way to commercial. Could you maybe walk us through what that looks like? Yeah. So for, for MedChem, for medicinal chemistry syntheses, the there are even fewer restrictions there. The goal is really just to get a few milligrams uh, in hand as quickly as you possibly can. So you can you, you you don't pay much attention to the nature of the reagents or the costs of those things at all at the very beginning. So um, the chemistry that you would do to make material for medicinal chemistry is really not diff- any different from what people would uh, the kinds of reactions people would run in graduate school. So as we move from MedChem through to um, early clinical supply routes, which is uh, what, what's shown here, um, some work is done to optimize the, the chemistry to make sure that it's suitable to scale to uh, tens or hundreds of gram uh, scale that we use to support, late, let's say, um, some later stage discoveries, uh, studies that make sure we have the right compound before we move into the clinic. Greg, would you say like, to summarize, this glycosylation selectivity near the end is a key problem you guys needed to solve. Yeah, and then yeah. there's just way too many functional group manipulations in this chemistry. Like we're not forming that many bonds. We're just kind of moving protecting groups around and changing oxidation states. Are those the kind of two big things that we needed to solve here? Yeah, those are the, the two key things. And that's that's really what kills the efficiency of a, of a large-scale process. If, if the extent to which you can minimize unit operations has a really dramatic impact on the total um, cost and, and waste that are produced. And if you have steps like the glycosylation here that, that have poor selectivity, that inherently generates a lot of waste and unnecessary uh, operations that we, 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 those are the kinds of things we really focus on when we're looking to arrive at the ultimate long-term manufacturing route. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So Anya, I mean, Ultimately, where this ended up is in a, in a really novel biocatalytic cascade. So I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on sort of what were some of the original insights that made you and the, and the biocatalysis team think that this could be a good solution to this problem? Like, was there a specific reaction or a specific pathway that that ultimately inspired uh, this? Yeah. So as, as you and Greg have, uh, have just uh, explained, the key challenge of the, the uh, previous synthesis was the selectivity of the glycosylation. So selectivity of installation based onto sugar molecule. And we thought that the uh, similarity of this nucleoside analog to, to, uh, to the oxynucleosides render uh, this molecule an ideal target to try some of the biocatalytic approaches to solve the the problem of the base installation. And this is where uh, some of my uh, colleagues, uh, before I even uh, joined Merck, thought about those ideas, how to demonstrate this reaction. And they were uh, studying this reaction first in reverse, uh, so trying to chop this molecule into pieces. And then uh, some of the discoveries and and insights about the thermodynamics of these uh, reversible reactions led to demonstration that, in fact, you can uh, run this reaction in the synthetic direction as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know that a large, you know, part of this story in this project was brought together through our um, through our protein engineering group who did a lot of directed evolution. Anya, could you maybe, I guess, tell us a little bit more about what directed evolution is and, you know, how it was done on this project? Yeah, so directed evolution is this uh, revolutionary methodology that allows us to improve uh, proteins and enzymes in a systematic uh, manner in order to uh, to change the, the function. So in a way, directed evolution mimics the process of natural selection that we observe uh, in, in nature, but we do it in the laboratory in a more controlled um, manner uh, by by selecting uh, variants for the for the function that we want to improve, and it's impossible to talk about directed evolution without mentioning Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2018, and for us working in the biocatalysis field. Uh, the, the, the award uh, for uh, Francis Arnold, who demonstrated that you can apply this methodology to to systematically improve uh, the, the enzymes and the catalytic function, um, um, uh, just uh, enabled us to harness uh, harness this um, this method and use it uh, use it in in catalysis. Yeah, we have a couple of, I think, Arnold alums, right, within BioCAD and also protein engineering. Oh, yes. uh, a lot of uh, our our uh, colleagues, uh, first or second generation uh, Arnold alumni, so, uh, so those ideas percolate uh, in our group, and uh, um, and, and, and we, we, we take a full advantage of, 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 of um, what Francis Ar Arnold uh, originally developed. Yeah. So how long does this take? Because, you know, evolution takes a long time. Sometimes we don't have that long. So, you know, can we speed this up? In a way, directed evolution is an iterative uh, process where we have um, different generations of, uh, of our catalysts. And each of those rounds can take from two to four weeks um, at average. And that's been greatly accelerated by the advances in analytical techniques, computation, as well as um, uh, uh, molecular biology and protein engineering. That's so cool. Um, Greg, you were trained as a synthetic organic chemist, both in your PhD and your postdoc. But uh, certainly since 2007, 2008, you've spent uh, quite a bit of your career working uh, directly with um, biocatalysts. So I I'm interested in sort of hearing your perspective on that and, and what amazes you the most about this technology as a practitioner of organic synthesis. You know, in synthetic organic chemistry, if you, if you are looking at a transition metal catalyzed reaction and you get a 1% yield the first time you try it, um, your confidence that you're going to be able to convert that that one percent yield into something that's commercially relevant is is low. Like maybe ten percent of the time, you might be able to find a, a ligand or uh, conditions that improve that that activity, but you're not terribly confident that that's going to work. Um, the opposite is true with biocatalysis as a platform. As long as you have access to these protein engineering tools, a one percent yield is actually a, a pretty um, positive starting place to, to go from. Like, I, I don't know, Anya, if you would agree with that. I think we've probably run somewhere over more than 100 directed evolution programs over the course of the, the time that we've been working in this field. So since 2008. And I can think of on one hand, the number of times those evolution projects have failed to, to 
get us to the place where we wanted to technically. You can, if you have a reasonable starting point, a 1% conversion starting point in a, in a biocatalytic reaction, I would say with greater than 95% confidence, you, you can uh, optimize from that position to a place where you have an enzyme that will function under the parameters that we'd like to be um, to be working in a commercial setting. And that's that's that kind of reliability allows us to make really bold decisions early on in root selection. If you can draw something on paper, that's the best way to make a molecule that relies on biocatalytic steps that you have um, even very weak proof of concepts for, you can be really confident that you're going to be able to get to a place where that can be a, a viable commercial process. Yeah, I couldn't agree more uh, that the power of directed evolution to, to deliver the catalyst uh, that will meet our criteria for the um, process uh, development is just incredible. And we're so lucky to have this technology in-house uh, in to uh, to help us uh, developing uh, the, the best uh, chemistry. Yeah, this might need to get cut um, out of this, but I don't know. I remember we had an enzyme that was came from a bald eagle, and I thought that was the <laughs> coolest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. To, to everything that we do here in the US. <laughs> yeah, we choose we choose cool power a animals to like drive our routes. We, we draw from the entire um, tree of life. Uh, we, we we have uh, and we've been using enzymes from mammals, bacteria, fungi. So we don't discriminate against um, the branches of tree of life. <laughs> So I guess a title of the, you know, like a component of the paper or like the main component was developing this biocatalytic cascade in one pot. And I guess, can you go into like a little bit more detail about how you go about doing that? Like, do you develop each step first, then you, you know, figure out the cascade, do you try to do it all at once? But I mean, I think, yeah, I, I would love to know too. Cause it sounds yeah. so amazing. Yeah, we did in this case. And I, and I think in, normally that's what you would do. You would develop each step a little bit on its own and show that each transformation in the cascade is viable. Um, and then we pushed as many of them together as we could into uh, one vessel and, and developed um, a, a continuous process uh, later on once we had established reasonable proof of concept. And there were some instances, Anya was more involved in this than I was, there were some instances where the overall process actually worked much better if you um, strategically uh, squished a few things together into into one vessel. So let me get this straight. So maybe I'll summarize this for, for our viewers, and then maybe you can help me sort of tie this all in the bow. So essentially what the cascade is, is it starts with two aldehydes, um, acetaldehyde and a, and a more elaborated phosphorylated aldehyde. Then there's an enzymatic reaction that catalyzes the formation of an aldol adduct, which ultimately cyclizes into a ribose. And then there are uh, two enzymes involved in the glycosylation, one, one that uh, moves the phosphate around, and then the second one that actually uh, does the, the displacement or catalyzes the displacement. Initially, when we were developing this, this, this cascade, we were following a chemical logic. So we were developing the glycosylation separately and the sugar synthesis separately because this is kind of the most similar to the to to the way how you would think about doing chemistry. But ultimately, um, as we were developing those different reactions, um, the logic that started prevailing was a thermodynamic logic. So what we grouped together were 
all uh, the reversible steps, so the aldol uh, reaction, um, uh, uh, phosphate uh, isomerization, and the base installation, these three steps are reversible, and, and it really made sense to, uh, to group them together in order to drive the thermodynamic uh, equilibrium of these three reversible uh, reactions using the fourth enzyme, the sucrose phosphorylase. Uh, so, so, so that logic prevailed, and uh, and then that left out two uh, two uh, initial steps in the synthesis, so phosphorylation and oxidation, to be to be separate, and these two steps are irreversible. So, therefore, they, uh, we didn't need to worry about the therm thermodynamics for those two steps to, uh, as much as for for the actual um, end game cascade. And to answer your question about staffing, uh, people so initially, uh, indeed, we have uh, um, um, one, uh, probably one scientist per, per, per enzyme. But ultimately, when th this grouping happened, um, we we would actually pair a, a person with a biocatalysis experience and with a process experience that they could form the, a team to 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 work on a particular step. Uh, regardless of the number of enzymes that was uh, um, in a single pot. So, Greg, can you give me a sense of like when when Anya alluded to this thermodynamic equilibrium and having to drive this with a fourth enzyme? Can can you give our listeners a, a sort of the rationale as to why this reaction is reversible in the first place, and 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 how you guys designed the sucrose phosphorylation uh, as a way around it? So the other piece that's in here, when you couple the, the base and the sugar together, you liberate an equivalent of free phosphate. And we took advantage of, um, uh, of enzymes that, that sequester free phosphate by attaching it to uh, the glucose unit in, within sucrose. And that, that chemistry is what really drives the equilibrium to very high conversion. We add um, an excess of glucose along with sucrose phosphorylase, which is the enzyme that catalyzes the, the sequestering of phosphate by, by sucrose. Um, and that really drives the, the equilibrium. All of those, those products are water soluble. They stay in solution and the product we're interested in precipitates out and we can filter it off as a fairly pure uh, material. So when you, you establish these possibilities, right? Uh, you can decide which enzyme, cli enzyme class to go after because there's a lot of enzymes that do phosphorylations and a lot of enzymes that do oxidation. Can you give us a sense of how you guys decide sort of which class to go after? Do you use substrate homology? Do we have panels of these things? Like to give our listeners a little bit of, of sort of how you think about uh, starting that exploration. Sure. Uh, so, uh, so we actually went after all possible enzyme classes that that we could think of in our ability to test those hypotheses really relied on um, our academic and industrial collaborators that provide us with a lot of the enzymes um, to test uh, and 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 to demonstrate whether the particular chemistry worked uh, or not so uh, so for example the oxidase enzyme came from our collaboration with the University of Manchester who uh, who who then provided the enzyme that that gave us the initial proof of concept that 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 um, oxidation of the prime stereoselective oxidation of primary primary alcohol is in fact possible 
but uh, when it comes to phosphorylation, which turned out to be the most challenging um, um, step in terms of enzyme discovery, it took us over a year to identify the right enzyme for that transformation. It was the integration of the protein engineers within the team um, that uh, eventually led to a discovery of a kinase. And as Greg uh, earlier alluded, it was a blip on the chromatogram that um, make us all rally uh, in, in the corridors here in Rahway, New Jersey. Uh, that was uh, probably my most emotional moment in, in, in my career at Merck. I almost cried when we discovered that Enzy was a, <laughs> an, an epic journey to, to, to find it. So, so I would say the key to success is a collaboration, external and, and internal, and um, never, give, never giving up. That's amazing. So, you know, I think this has been such a phenomenal story and, you know, we're, we're sadly at the end. And so we kind of want to like leave our listeners to what, you know, maybe the future might hold and what you've all learned along the way. So Greg and Anya, you know, looking back on all of the beautiful work that you've done for, you know, nearly five years, uh, what do you think we've learned here and what's going to be the impact that goes beyond this one project? Yeah. So I, we have, um, I, I'm sure this is natural for any, um, organization that that's carving new, new paths. Um, we have a, a tendency to iteratively build these things. So um, my, as we talked a little bit about my introduction to this, to the field of biocatalysis really involved um, uh, transaminases that we engineered um, in the early, in, I guess the late 2000s to make chiral amines from ketones. We, it was just one step. We took one one ketone starting material and made a product out of it. And from that one uh, transformation, we, we built on that to, to run dynamic kinetic resolutions, to do reductive aminations, and then ultimately to start stitching these kinds of transformations together uh, into the process that we've been describing here for making complex uh, nucleosides uh, in, a, in a cascade fashion. So the next step, the next thing we're looking at are making even more complex molecules where we have collections of cascades that we've put together to, to enable us to make even more complex molecules in ways that are remarkably efficient. Without tools like this, you couldn't imagine making um, these, these kinds of really complex um, uh, materials in a way that's commercially viable. And, and I think I think that's what's next for us is to take the success from this and other programs where we've relied on this kind of cascade approach and go to the next level, expand it to to enable us to do even more amazing things in the future, which is part of what makes this field so, uh, so exciting. And if I could add to what uh, Greg has just said, uh, so I have th two thoughts. So one, one thing on the technology uh, uh, front, for, um, for nucleoside uh, analogs. Uh, so with the tools uh, uh, we developed, with the enzymes we discovered, uh, we are now well equipped to build other nucleoside analogs at a um, uh, rapid uh, pace. And, and we demonstrated it recently on our another uh, non-natural nucleoside uh, drug candidate. So the preprint on this uh, mm, catalytic cascade to, to another nucleoside is already available um, uh, uh, in the press and, and hopefully the, the paper will follow uh, in the near future. 
And then the second and probably more important uh, um, uh, learning lesson um, from, from this project was that uh, it was the, the mind shift uh, in our department uh, to, to, uh, and, and, uh, in, in how we think about building molecular complexity. So as we were building the, the cascade for the nucleoside, uh, we, at the same time we were building a cascade for even more complex molecule and hopefully the story uh, by uh, uh, by our colleagues is going to be uh, uh, available in press uh, um, in the near future as well. It's going to show you that that uh, the, those uh, principles about building uh, cascades in the, and the logic of uh, um, enzymatic um, uh, biosynthesis of non-natural mo molecule translates to uh, to uh, many other molecules of even greater uh, uh, molecular complexity. I think the group tattoo helped too, right? <laughs> yeah. JK. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a really great perspective. You know, we, we've spent the last three episodes talking about nucleosides, and we started with talking about sort of synthetic organic methods to make a lot of analogs, right, and sort of the, the gap that exists there. And then we talked about chemical methods to make modified nucleosides and sort of what was state of the art, you know, not that long ago. And in the space of a few years, we've now sort of completely reimagined uh, nucleoside synthesis. And, and this project was really at the forefront of that. And so I think um, that's a really amazing thing to look at the last sort of five years. And, and even in the course of the three, you know, papers that we highlighted or, or the three episodes that we've highlighted in our series, you kind of see the evolution of that, right? So it's it's a completely different way of thinking about making molecules, which is super exciting. Yeah. And, and what's even more exciting to see is that uh, our entire department uh, can speak now the language of biology, directed evolution, enzyme discovery. Uh, so uh, that's an incredible shift that happened in the last uh, five years or so. Um, yeah, so there's going to be more exciting uh, cascades to come. Stay tuned, folks. Stay tuned. You heard it here. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for being part of our um, episode today. We loved um, our we loved our discussion, and we hope that you come back sometime soon to maybe discuss some of those preprints that you're hinting at you know <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna keep you in suspense yeah there we go bye folks thanks for listening to the farm to table podcast this would not have been possible without our fabulous producer mark partridge and listeners like you be sure to check our episode credits where you'll find more details about the show as well as links to anything that we've discussed during the show if you find yourself craving even more info you can find us both on twitter i am at danny the chemist and LC can be found at, at, at Dr. LC Squared. But of course, our show also has a handle, and that is at Farm to Table Pod. Farm with a PH, in case you were wondering, where you'll find some behind the scenes action, future episodes, and sneak peeks, and likely some random post, posts about chemistry, snacks, and where, whatever else. Of course, uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please uh, interact with us on Twitter. Feel free to post any chemistry papers, Merck chemistry papers that, uh, that you found particularly memorable and that maybe you want us to build an episode around. So stay tuned, folks. <laughs>